Now, we live in a virtual reality, this physical universe we call our physical universe. I guess that's our name for it, a physical universe. It's a virtual reality. It's information. Remember, consciousness gets information and takes that information and interprets a reality from that information it gets. My guest today is Tom Campbell, a physicist, a lecturer, author of the only nonfiction trilogy that I've ever read called My Big Toe, and I believe a granddad many times over. Tom, welcome, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Rod. It's my pleasure to be here. I was in Australia, what, 2017, I think, something like that, and didn't spend as much time there as I would have liked to. Didn't get to see much, just went in, did my thing, and we toured around just a little bit in the Auckland area, and then we had to go to the next stop. So yep. I'd like to get back. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a trek from where you are in the States, but it's yeah. definitely worth coming. So it's getting up to, we get, we're just about to get into spring, so it's the weather's starting to warm up a bit now. All right. So I read My Big Toe, uh, I think it was a few years ago. I think this is the 20th anniversary for My Big Toe, isn't it? It, was mm, it is. Yeah. And... I've actually started rereading it because when you read books, they gradually fade from memory, but it really did start a whole exploration of things that were paranormal, but just starting to question reality. And it, it was a really a big leap in providing some sort of tools and a framework to understand consciousness that I'd never had before. That was my introduction to who you were, and I've been following your work ever since. So mm -hmm. I'm really happy to have you on the show. So I'd like to start with a little bit of background about your life that led to you becoming interested in, let's say, non-physical reality and developing a theory of everything. And if in hindsight, did you have any other earlier childhood experiences that might have been indicated that there would be more to come later in your adult life? Yes. I, I came into this world very much a, a right brain child, very intuitive. I was my sister's bane in, on long trips because... Long trips in a car, you know how it is with kids. Ten minutes, they say, are we there yeah. yet? And it gets boring sitting in a car. On long trips, I would just chant and meditate. And when my parents finally got there five or six hours later, it's, oh, i just gotten in the car. I didn't notice it that any time had passed. So that was the kind of kid I was at four and five years old, six years old. So I was very right brain coming in. But I knew I had very definite push that I needed to be left brain. I needed to learn how to do logic, learn how to make sense of things. I was always had a pressure to go that direction. In school, I struggled with things like math because they just didn't come naturally to me. But I eventually overcame that struggle. And eventually, I got to the point where math was easy. And I struggled with physics, but I got to a point where that was pretty easy too. I went on for graduate degrees and became a physicist. And sometime in around year seven, seven years old, I had had lots of experiences in out of body. I had some entities come and teach me how to go out of body and take me, get me out of body and then let me go play with it. And then there were other lessons to learn. So I, I went through all of that, but somewhere around seven and eight, I guess more like eight, I was told that I had to quit. Couldn't do that anymore because it wouldn't be good for me to grow up weird. 
I needed to grow up and be pretty much like everybody else because in our culture, when you're weird, they do not nice things to you. Mm. So that was my right brain ended there. Not so much in the way I thought, but in so much as the, the, the going out of body all stopped. All the paranormal things pretty much stopped there, except I always had a link with non-physical beings who would answer my questions and point out things and teach me things. So that was always there. And of course, I had no idea that it wasn't always there for everybody. I didn't know that. And I didn't actually call it anything. Didn't have a name for it. There were just these presents. And if I got in a jam of some sort, I could always ask them and they would give me some very helpful answers. So I trusted them implicitly. And Let's see, I got to college, majored in physics, went to graduate school. While I was in graduate school, I learned how to meditate, not because I thought meditation was such a neat idea, but because the ad for meditation said that if you learn to meditate, you could get by on less sleep. And (laughs) I was in graduate school and working on a big Van de Graaff accelerator And when that machine was working, you stayed with it as long as you were taking data, which means you might have to stay up for two or three days in a row without sleeping because your machine was taking data and you don't say, let's turn it off and come back in the morning. It doesn't work like that. If you turned it off, there's about a 50-50 chance that it wouldn't turn on in the morning and that would be the end of it. Your experiment was over. In any case, I learned to meditate and shortly... Uh, After learning to meditate, I just found out, because I'm curious and I tried, that I could debug my software. All the software that I was using to do the physics that had to do with the experiments I was doing, I could debug that software in my mind. And that was a huge breakthrough, because this is the bad old days of punch cards. And debugging software was hard. There weren't any debuggers. The computer didn't give you any hints why your job didn't run, other than, sorry, your job didn't run. That's it. And it wasn't only errors that I made. Key punches themselves would sometimes punch a hole just slightly off-center, and the card reader wouldn't read it. So there were those kinds of errors as well. And I could find them in my mind just by mental effort. Oh, such and such a card has a problem. And I'd look at it and say, well, I don't see any problem. It'd turn out there'd be a key punch hole error in that, on that card. So it wasn't that it was coming out of my subconscious that somehow I really knew I had made a mistake on those lines of code and I was just getting it out of my mind. I knew that this was something beyond the physical. And here I am, a physicist. And to my mind, if you can't measure it, it either isn't real or it isn't important. That's called an operational definition of reality. And by measure, I mean, if you can't interact with it, if it isn't something that you can interact with, not necessarily physically, but with your tools, you know, with your beams and microscopes or telescopes that you can't interact with it in any way, then it doesn't necessarily exist. And if it does, it's not relevant because you can't interact with it. That's the way physicists mostly see the world. And that leads to thinking all the things that are subjective are all just 
things imagined in mind. There isn't any real substance to them because you can't measure them. Therefore, they don't really exist. That's not a very satisfactory attitude, but as a physicist, I never noticed that wasn't a very satisfactory attitude. It seemed like that was all right. So anyway, this thing with being able to debug software was like a big swift kick in the pants in the sense that I'm a physicist. What I do is model reality. And there was a whole nother part of reality that I didn't know anything about, but I knew it existed and I knew it was real because I didn't doubt my experience. It's not like I did this once and could have been a dream. I did this, I debugged it day after day, month after month, and this worked fine for me. Um, so it was just a tool I had that was not explainable by the physical in any way. So that's my early experience that led me here. Then eventually I, I get out of graduate school, I go to work, and I run into Bob Monroe. That's a longer story. We can go there if you like, but I run into Bob Monroe and Bob had, maybe some, all your listeners don't know, know Bob Monroe. He wrote books, Journeys Out of the Body, Far Journeys and Ultimate Journey. It was about his out-of-body experiences. And when I met him, I wanted to know, is this guy just making this stuff up or what? And it turned out he wasn't making any of it up and he had built a laboratory it was just a building that, that was going to be a laboratory. Didn't have anything, didn't have any equipment. It had three isolation booths in it. And that's as far as he'd gotten. He was looking for some scientists to help him set up and actually create a laboratory to study consciousness. Because he was, he had a mindset more like an engineer. He wanted to understand what was happening to him. He was wealthy, so he wasn't trying to sell books. <laughs> The income he got from books wasn't a half of 1% of his income. That obviously had nothing to do with it. I started working with Bob at the laboratory for about 15 to 20 hours a week, pretty much almost half time. And I did that for probably six or seven years. So that's okay. a half time job for six or seven years. That's a lot of hours. And my deal with Bob was that I would a free scientist if he would be a free teacher of how to go out of body because I knew that if it wasn't my experience and it couldn't be my truth it couldn't be something I really understood you have to experience things before you own them if you just read about it or hear about it or else have somebody else tell you about it it's just not really entirely real when you do it it's real so that was the deal and We'd go, myself and Dennis Menerick, an electrical engineer that I worked with, also met Bob the same time I did. So we went out to see Bob, like I say, for maybe six years or so, maybe a little more. And he taught us both how to go out of body. And we wanted to prove to ourselves that this wasn't just something we were making up. So we only wanted to do things that were evidential. Now, evidential means that you give, gather information that you have no idea what it is. You have no way of knowing what it will be, but there is an answer. You can find out. You can look it up someplace. That's evidential. So we did a lot of remote viewing. We did healing. We did all the paranormal things just to see if it worked. And if it worked, not just every once in a while randomly, but what were the variables? Why did it work? Why did it work better sometimes than other times? 
And being the physicist, I was in charge of figuring out theory, understanding the theory of how it worked. So that was where my mind was. How does this work? Why does it work? What's the point? And what I did is I started to do physics experiments while I was out of body. And by that, what I mean is I do these paranormal things that were evidential, and then I change a variable and do them again and see what effect did that variable have on my ability to perform the paranormal thing. And then I do a different variable. And all of that's very tedious work, but most of science is very tedious work. And about 35 years later of doing these experiments, I thought I understood consciousness. And I wrote the books, My Big Toe, basically as a theory and understanding of, of consciousness. And it was based on the facts I've learned about consciousness from an out-of-body state, which is what makes me unique. There's very few physicists in this world, if any, besides me, who have that sort of facility in the larger consciousness system out of body. I hate to say out of body because you, you don't get out of your body. That's just a, mm -hmm. not a very good metaphor, but that's what everybody understands. I use the term anyway. You're not in your body. But anyway, a physicist that understands the physics and understands consciousness from inside, not consciousness as people look at it from the outside. So that led me to eventually, after I published the books, a few years after, to realize that I could derive a better physics, a more general, what, more capable physics from consciousness. Just take the things that consciousness said, the way this is how the world needs to be. This is how reality needs to be to support my facts of consciousness. That I could take those facts of consciousness and actually derive quantum physics and derive relativity, first principles. Now, that's something that the physicists can't do because relativity has this big unknown. They don't know why the speed of light needs to be a constant. That's a key thing. Once you understand that C, speed of light, is a constant, then special relativity is just a little algebra. Uh -huh. it's, that's the main idea that makes relativity is that the C is a constant. So I could understand that easily why C was a constant. And with quantum physics, they get stuck on not being able to comprehend why reality should be probabilistic, not material. If you, in quantum physics, if you assume that things are material, like if you assume an electron's a little chunk of mass with a charge, you can't get any right answers because that's not what it is. It doesn't work that way. It's a protoparticle. It's probability that doesn't actually exist until a measurement's made. And then they have this thing they say in physics that the, the probability wave function collapses when the measurement is made and the, and the probability function becomes a physical particle. That's nonsense. You know, how does a, how does a piece of mathematics, a probability turn into a physical particle because you make the measurement? So that's the big mystery underlying quantum physics and why quantum physics is referred to as weird physics because it has this, this weird aspect to it and physicists have no clue what that means or how that works or why it's that way. And I can derive from first principles exactly why it has to be that way from consciousness. So then I started looking at 
a lot of other things that were paradoxes in physics. There's lots of paradoxes in physics. And some of those are very obvious. Ask a physicist where time comes from, and he won't know. Ask him where mass comes from, and he won't know. Ask him where space comes from, and he won't know. All the basic things that physicists work with every day, and all of their physics is based on these things, they have no idea where those things come from. The physicists will just say, well, they are because they are. That's not science. You know, that's uh, not a good scientific answer. And then there's other things like there's, if you ever listen to uh, Rupert Sheldrake's, something like 10 problems with physics that got yanked off of TED Talks because it was pseudoscience. It wasn't pseudoscience. It was good science. And all 10 of those things are things that are all paradoxes in physics, things that physics knows are there that way, but they don't know why they're that way. And one of them was the speed of light actually does change a little bit from time to time, but only in, let's say, the ninth decimal place. It just changes just a little tiny bit. It's been recorded now like four times that it's changed. And I can explain that very easily, why that happens. And there are a set of constants. We just call them cosmic constants because they're big picture constants. And if any one of those constants changed, even in the ninth decimal place, the whole universe would go unstable. I think it's called the anthropic principle or something like that. The idea is it looks like these constants were all, what can we say, all honed to be what they are together. Like they, they only work as a set because if any one of those constants, I think there's five of them, if any one of those constants changed in the ninth decimal place, the universe would be unstable. So it's real important that all those constants be exactly the way they are out the nine decimal places to keep this place stable. That looks like that was a plan. What's the probability that happened randomly? Oh, just randomly. They all were exactly what they needed to be to nine decimal places. And of course, that's silly. That doesn't happen randomly. And I can explain exactly why that had to happen. And so on it goes. There's lots of these paradoxes that exist. And this model of mine of physics answers them all very clearly. And my model doesn't have any strange assumptions in it. The only assumption really is consciousness exists. And I don't, after that, I just derive logically, mostly deductively, what happens until I end up with consciousness and how it works. So anyhow, that's the real short over-the-top story of what it is I've done. I guess one other thing I would add is that this model not only produced a better physics, but it also produced an understanding, a scientific explanation for the subjective world. So now there's a science of the subjective as well as the science of the object. The science of the objective world we call physics. Physics, chemistry, biology, you know, those are all sciences of the objective world. But this Science of the subjective world tells us about us. If you're unhappy and miserable, it'll tell you why. What's the point? What's missing? And what you need to do to change that? So it's understanding the subjective experiences in our life. And of course, from my viewpoint, opposite of a physicist's viewpoint now, is that it's the subjective world is where all the importance is. 
That's where all the meat of life is. That's where the objective world is just the stuff. It's like the settings on the stage. It's just the stuff. Your house, your car, your clothes, your body. That's all the physical stuff. But the subjective world is where all the importance is. It's about love and caring and sharing and friendliness and justice and all the things that make your life important. Who do you marry? How many children do you have? These are all subjective decisions. You can't make any of those objectively. They're all subjective. All of that is part of the subjective world. And in my mind, the subjective world is just a whole lot more meaningful and significant than the objective world. Who goes to a play to watch the, the stage and all the props? That's the objective stuff. You yeah. go to a play not to watch the props. You go to a play because of what's going on in the minds of the actors and the characters they're playing and the interactions between those characters and the story they tell. And that's all subjective. That's all subjective. Okay, that's my one over the top. So everybody knows a little bit of who Tom Campbell is. He's a weird physicist who has written my big toe. And I have a website and I have about a thousand videos on YouTube in case you're interested. But other than that, I'm open for questions, Rod, whatever you'd like to ask. Okay. Well, the first one was my understanding of consciousness is it's fundamental. So everything springs from mm -hmm. consciousness. Could you give us like a, just for the lay person, your understanding of what consciousness is? Okay. I can define consciousness just very simply. Consciousness is awareness with a choice. That's what a four word definition. Yeah. So if we start from the beginning, so there was consciousness and it always had awareness or then awareness became, and then choices started to be no. made. No. When I start with consciousness exists, that's an assumption. It already has awareness, but a very dim awareness. You know how biologists, if you give them a living cell, they will derive all the rest of the things that are on our planet that are living. Just give them one living cell and they will take that and show you how that cell evolved into all the plants and animals and creatures and things that are alive here. Mm. Okay, it started with like single-celled things, bacteria, and then they got more complicated, like amoebas, and amoebas have parts, and so on. And it, it evolved up until finally you get all the creatures we have there, including ourselves. So a, bio a biologist can tell you that story, but he has to start with a cell. He can't tell you where that first cell came from. Now, he can do some hand-waving, and he can say, if there were some right kind of amino acids and the right sort of this and that and a little bit of electricity like from lightning or static electricity ah that might have started that that first cell so the hand waving is a physics term for means it's not hard facts it's conjecture so they can wave their hands in the air and come up with some conjecture where that first cell came from and they can even duplicate it in their labs get the right stuff together put a little spark through it and yeah, they get something that resembles a living cell that maybe they could work with. So I'm the same way. I start with the most minimal piece of consciousness. And that minimal piece of consciousness then is a thing that is aware, but it's only aware of the fact that it exists and it can be in state A or state B because consciousness has a choice. 
So if it was just in state A, then there wouldn't be any choice for the consciousness. So the minimalist thing for a consciousness is it has to be, it can be between state A or state B. And that's it. And it can change from state A to B and state B to A. And that's all it is. That's the, think of that as a, a consciousness cell, if you like, like instead of a biological cell. And from there, I show logically how it would evolve, how it had to evolve. And basically, that evolutionary process takes that up through what it is today, which is I call the larger consciousness system. And we, you and I, and all the rest of the people and dogs and cats around here are subsets of that. We're pieces of that consciousness. I call those individuated units of consciousness. And that's what we are. Consciousness is fundamental. And it starts with consciousness. Now, it might seem to some of your listeners that it's a logical flaw that I start with just consciousness exists. Okay, now just like the biologists, I can give a conjecture answer to where that consciousness came from. And some other people have come up with similar conjecture. Uh, I've seen it at Stanford University. I believe it was in the, the philosophy department and look up automata, cellular automata, and you'll find I don't know, probably a hundred pages of it, but you'll find one section of it where they deal with consciousness. There's hand-waving conjecture that you can feel, but it's not a failure to not know it because the reason we can't know it is because we are pieces of consciousness. We are consciousness. And you can't know, you can't experience, you can't have firsthand knowledge of what it is that you are what it is that created you. Babies don't watch themselves being born. It's just a process. And later they grow up and say, oh, okay, I was born one, you know, in the past. And they understand it and they realize it, but it's not an experience necessarily that they have or one that they remember. That's not a great example, but the thing is that if you are consciousness, you can't get outside of consciousness to look back at consciousness with a objective view. Mm. You know, you can't do it. You're in it. So you can't get outside of yourself to look back at it and say, ah, okay, I can see now. Oh, look, I see where it came from. That has to be from a view that's outside of consciousness. We can't get outside of consciousness because we are consciousness. So therefore that, where did it start? It's not a fault that you don't know. You logically can't know. That's an unknowable. The best you'll ever be able to do is wave your hands and come up with some conjecture because we can't get outside of what we are in order to see how that happened, in order to get some idea of where that might have come from. So that's not a, a flaw. It's just a, a kind of a logical fact that we won't know that. Those biologists will never know for sure where that first cell came from unless they can get outside of that experience and watch it happen, see how that happened. But there isn't any memory. There aren't any written records. There isn't any way for them to do that. And so they'll never know for sure. All they can do is come up with reasonable conjecture, but it'll never be certain. And it's the same with consciousness. It'll never be certain exactly where that, that consciousness cell came from. But let me have that one cell. And that's not a, a huge uh, assumption because we're conscious. You and I and all the people listening to this are conscious. We have consciousness. So that consciousness exists, 
is not a, a real bender as far as an assumption goes. It's about as obvious assumption that, as you can imagine. So that's where I started from. And the rest of this is just consciousness evolution. And it's not a model that says, well, consciousness could have evolved this way. It's consciousness had to evolve this way. So I don't go off into those little details that it could have done this or could have done that. I stay with the basics of what it had to do. So the model is based on the way consciousness had to evolve. Didn't have other choices. This was its only path of evolution. Now with biology, that path of evolution is defined by an ability to procreate and survive, right? If you can't procreate and survive, eventually you'll disappear from that evolutionary system. Consciousness is to lower entropy. And entropy is a, a science word, but it's not all that scary. It's just a measure of disorder. And I model consciousness as an information system, which makes sense. What, is, what are we conscious of? We're conscious of the data that we collect with our five senses. That's what we're conscious of. That's the input data. We take that data and we look at it and interpret it to be this reality. So our reality is based on us interpreting data that we receive. We get data, we do processing on that data, and we say, oh, there's a fish, there's a dog, there's a house, there's my mother. And we learn what all these things are and what their names are. But that's because we learn that from after we're born. So we learn how to interpret the data. So consciousness is an information system because it gets information and comes to some kinds of conclusions and attitudes based on the information it gets, same as any information system. So think of an information system where all the bits are random. Now a bit is not really a science word. It's just a, the definition of the smallest piece of information possible. That's a bit. So if you work information down to the smallest possible piece, that's a bit. So let's say you have a system and all the bits are random. If all the bits are random, there is no information. They're all just random bits. Mm. But if you take some of those bits and order them, which lowers their entropy, right? Entropy is a measure of disorder. All random is highest disorder. If you can order those bits, which lowers their entropy, then those ordered bits can mean something. You can give them, they could be a symbol of something. It could be the, a number. It could be the number two this way and that way, state A and state B. It could stand for things, but you have to make order. There's no information until you order the bits. Entropy is a measure, how entropy gets lowered is a measure of how consciousness evolves. Consciousness isn't about survival and procreation. Consciousness is about lowering entropy. That's its motivator to evolve. So it makes maybe a pattern with those bits. And then maybe it makes patterns of patterns or all kinds of different patterns. And then eventually it takes two of those bits and just lets them oscillate. A, B, A, B, A, B, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. And when it does that, it's created a metronome. Now it has regular time. And if it has regular time, it can also create sequences of patterns of sequences as much complication as it can. So as the things get more ordered, they get more complex. 
they get more useful because all those things can, and one of the very first things it would learn would be arithmetic, would be quantity, because each little piece of ordered bits is a thing. And then here's another thing. Oh, one thing plus another thing is two things. And the, the simple concepts of logic of quantity, which is what math is, it's just the logic of quantity. That would be one of the first things that it would understand. So it would be natural for it to develop a sense of mathematics and quantity and, and number. Okay, so in any case, that's what drives consciousness. So I can show that the system would go through a series of lowering entropy quickly, then not so much, a plateau where it's stuck. It's still lowering entropy, but just not as quickly as it had before. And then it comes up with another invention, oh, like time. Time was an invention. Okay, now it can do sequences. So it starts to have more novel things that it can do in ways that it can order. And then the last big breakthrough for it was that it could take pieces of itself and those pieces would all have free will because consciousness has free will. And I'll mention that in a little bit, why that is. And these pieces of free will then can interact with each other. As soon as you create bunches of things with free will, as time goes by, they start to diverge. They don't have the same experience. They, they have different experiences, so they have different opinions and different thoughts about what they want to do today. So then the interactions, see each one of these things, the invention of time and the invention of breaking itself up into pieces with free will, these things create more possibilities the way things can go together to lower entropy. It makes the system not only bigger, but smarter and more capable. It grows, it evolves, just like with people. You go to the one-celled thing, bacteria, to multi-celled things, to jellyfish, to frogs, to lizards, and eventually to, to people. Every step of that evolution makes things more complicated. There's more order. There's more structure. Here we are, human beings, and we've got, what, four trillion cells that are all working together cooperatively to make a human being. So that's a lot of order going on there. So actually, it turns out that the biological evolution follows the same thing. It's really lowering entropy as well. It's, that, that's what works. It lowers entropy. But in its system, low entropy configurations are more survivable because they're more complex. They're more adjustable. There's more things they can do. And they procreate better. Again, there's more options for them and ways they can do things. They're not limited to just a certain small set of possibilities. They have lots of possibilities, which give them more uh, abilities to procreate and to survive because they have options that they didn't have before without ordering. So it's the same with consciousness. So that's basically my model. So now if you believe that biology, the evolution of bi biological evolution, if you think that's a science, then what I have is a science. It's just as much a science as biology is. Because what it does is once you understand how, these, how this thing evolved, you get a lot of facts that otherwise aren't clear. Like biology, if you look at, look at a, what we call it, the dolphin, look at a dolphin. And, and you look at a dolphin's fin, guess what you find in there? You'll have bones that look just like that. It's like the bones are like a hand. It's got fingers. The fingers have joints so they can move. 
But these fingers aren't moving. It's part of a fin. But yet, there's the hand with all the individual fingers and all the finger joints for, for motion. And that tells you that's a fact. And if you didn't have evolution or biology, it'd be one of those paradoxes. Why does that animal have hand bones in its fin? Oh, that animal probably was a land animal before it became a sea animal. That evolution can work both ways. Sometimes the sea was a better source of food than was the land. Critters move to where the food is. In any case, uh, it solves paradoxes because you understand the fundamentals of how the system was built. What were the rules that it was built on? And mine is the same way. So mine is a science. It solves a lot of paradoxes, answers a lot of questions. And as far as I can tell, there isn't anything that it can't really explain. So it really is a theory of everything, including the subjective world. They say, why are these people happy and those people are miserable? It can say what it is about them that's created both the happiness and the misery. It boils down to, to really an understanding of a lot of things. You can derive a moral code. Philosophers have tried evolving a moral code for many centuries, and they always failed. I think the last one that was really pretty good was Spinoza, you know, a Spanish philosopher, and his moral code had flaws in it, like all the rest, because people could always come up. If you follow this code, you'll always make the right choice, the good choice, the moral choice. But you can always come up with some scenario that it doesn't work in. Yeah, but what if, and you can come, it may be really an obtuse, one in a million kind of scenario, but there are scenarios that it just doesn't fit. It, it, the code is not universal. It does explain a whole lot of what's right and what's wrong and what's moral and what's not, but it doesn't cover everything. It's not universal. It's got flaws in it. This code of mine does define what's right and wrong. In the long term, if what you do, the actions you take, the intents you have, lowers entropy for both yourself and the system, that's right. And if what you do and, and intend increases entropy in the long term for both yourself and the system, that's wrong. So it's just simple. It all reduces to entropy. Love can be defined as the nature of a low entropy individual, a low, ent a low entropy entity, that's love. And the fear is the opposite of love. That may strike people as being odd because they think love and hate are the opposites, but that's not it. There's something more fundamental than hate, and that is fear. Hate is born out of fear. In any case, it, it explains, on the soft side, it explains philosophy. There's a philosophy called, oh, what is it now? Um, there's realism, which is basically what the physicists believe, and that is if you can't measure it, it's not real. Everything that out there that you see, that's just the way it is, and there isn't anything else but that. And then there's the opposite of that, which is called idealism. And idealism is, an, is the sense there is something beyond what you see and what you feel out there in the world that is more fundamental. And that's an old idea. Remember the allegory of the men in the cave that Plato came up with when he was telling them that there's a fire behind them and they're looking at shadows on the wall of the cave and they think that's all reality is the shadows because these people have never, they can't turn around and see what's behind them. But there's another whole world behind them. The fire and the people who tend the fire and where the firewood came from, all of that is tended by 
something outside of their reality. And their reality is just as limited to the shadows on the wall. And yes, they can move and the shadows will move. So they identify with the shadows as being who they are. So that was Plato. And he was an idealist. And many of the best philosophers through history have been idealists. I think with one of the last big names was probably Kant. He was an idealist. In any case, that argument between idealism and, and realism has been going on for millennia. And now it's solved. Basically, with the double slit experiment, it was solved. And that is, it's not matter. Matter is not fundamental. What's fundamental is probabilistic. That's math. That's not anything physical. And that point, that argument was done. It turns out the idealists were right. There is something behind the physical. Otherwise, physical particles would not be based on, it means they come from probability waves. That wouldn't work that way. And you know, in our science, all the tiny little particles are what built or what are used to build bigger particles and bigger particles till we get the kind of mass that we're used to. But it's all built from the bottoms up out of these little subatomic particles that are nothing but probability. So that tells you that, that mass isn't the thing that is fundamental. You might say probability is fundamental, but that doesn't really make any sense. Probability is just a mathematics. It's just a way of looking at certain parts of quantity that some things are more or less probable than others. But as it turns out, consciousness is what is fundamental. The thing that everything else is, is built out of. Okay, so I'd like to go back a little bit to your time at the Monroe Institute because I'm fascinated by the work that he's done and read Bob's books. So during that time, you learn how to experience or, or visit different realities other than our current one, which is the PMR, physical matter reality. Have I got that right? So yeah. What was the most interesting alternative reality that you visited during that time or, or even since then, actually? There are a lot of alternative realities and there's all sorts of virtual realities out there. I guess we ought to talk about virtual realities. Virtual realities are realities that are created by a rule set. Okay. If you play the Sims, that's a virtual reality and it's created by a rule set of what the players can do. There's certain things they can do and certain things they can't do. So if you, if they have a swimming pool and somebody goes around, and pulls up all the ladders, they can't get out because the rules are that they can't get out unless there's a ladder. That's not the way it works in our you know, universe, but that's the way it works in the Sims world. At least that's the way it did work when my youngest daughter pulled all the ladders out and in order to get uh, gravestones in her front yard, because that was cool. So anyway, I digress, but a, a, a virtual reality is made based on rules. The rules that say what people can do and can't. It's the rules of causality, basically, is what made up. Now, we live in a virtual reality, this physical universe we call our physical universe. I guess that's our name for it, a physical universe. It's a virtual reality. It's information. Remember, consciousness gets information and takes that information and interprets a reality from that information it gets. So each of us is a piece of consciousness getting a data stream from the larger consciousness system, and we interpret it to be this physical universe. All right, now that's not the only virtual reality in town. There's lots of other virtual realities. There's others like ours, the, what we call the physical universe, that have a very tight rule set. Now our rule set is what we call science, is physics. 
It's chemistry, it's biology. Those are the rules of how things can work. There's a physical causality defines what we can do and what we can't do. A human being can't flap its hands and fly away. It also can't jump 20 feet in the air. There's things we just can't do because the rules just won't allow it. We're too heavy, too much gravity. We're not made. We can't flap our arms fast enough and et cetera. We have to obey the rules. We get hit in the head with something serious to give us brain damage. Then maybe we slur our speech. We drag our left foot and lose our memory, but that doesn't affect consciousness any. That just means that now that piece of consciousness has to deal with an avatar with damage, has to deal with an avatar. Same in Sims. If your Sims character gets damaged, then you just have to deal with a damaged Sims character until they heal, until they get over the damage. You have to deal with the damage. So that works the same way. Now, there are also very loose rule sets where you have a lot more leeway. You don't have every tiny interaction part of a rule like it is here with the physics. Like your dream reality. When you dream, you're basically interacting in a different reality frame. Okay? When you daydream, you're creating a virtual reality, your consciousness, and you can create virtual realities in your own daydream. And you do that only when your intellect is no longer feeding the daydream. You might start your daydream with your intellect, but eventually if you just let that daydream just go on and let it unravel as it does without you making everything happen, then you're creating a virtual reality from your own consciousness. Consciousness can do that sort of thing. Just we little pieces of consciousness can do pretty much everything the big consciousness can do. We just can't do it as much, as well, as fast. We're small pieces. We're just little pieces of this consciousness, so we don't have all the abilities of the system, but we have most of the same attributes as the system. So yes, when you fall asleep at night, you get a different data stream, and that data stream has a loose rule set, and in your dreams, you can teleport. You can disappear one place, appear someplace else. Things can come and go in a hurry, and it doesn't have to make sense as far as doesn't have to be like it is here in what we call the physical world because it's a different virtual reality with different rules. There's a different virtual reality you go to after you die and you're no longer in this physical universe. You end up in another virtual reality. There's literally just hundreds of virtual realities that are defined for one purpose or another. And there are, I wouldn't say hundreds, but there's at least some virtual realities that are just as tight a rule set as we have here. Other worlds like our physical universe, but it's a physical universe, but not like ours. What makes it physical is the fact that it has a very tight rule set, lots of rules. Every little tiny thing has to follow the rules. There are, I've been to several, probably five, six, eight, ten. 10, I don't know, over the many years. I've been doing this now for <laughs> 50 years. And I've been to quite a few of those virtual realities that are physical and they have beings not always like us. They mostly end up to be bipeds, but not always. Sometimes there's other things that aren't like us at all that evolve, but more often than not, they are like us and their physics there is like ours too. And the reason for that is that it's hard to get a rule set that will create 
a stable universe. Remember I mentioned all those constants that had to be just so to nine decimal places to get a stable universe. It's not like you can just do that real easily. That's a lot of trouble. So the same ones that work there tend to work elsewhere. So yeah, they have gravity just like we have gravity. That's one of the rules. They have a lot of the things we have because it's hard to make a virtual reality that will evolve for billions of years and not have it self-destruct. So it ends up that a lot of the things are similar because the system uses what works. Besides the system that's an information system, it's a lot easier to say copy, paste, and now you have three other virtual realities that are based on the same building blocks as the first one. That's just simple. It's easy to do. You don't always have to start from scratch if you spend, you know, 10,000 tries trying to get all those constants just right. You don't have to do that again. You can just start from what you've got. Some of it's similar. I've been to places that have been a lot uglier and meaner than what we have here. And I've been to places, and I, you know, I, let's just say less evolved than we are here. And I've been to places that one, one place that was a little more evolved than what we have here, but mostly they're less evolved. We're one of the high end, believe it or not, with all the dysfunction we've got in our world, you'd think we're on the bottom, but we're not. We've got a lot of potential here that the others haven't yet gotten to. Now, another thing I should put in here is that, so what is our purpose? What are we supposed to do? And why are we here playing in this virtual reality game? We are individuated units of consciousness. And in order to evolve, we make choices. That's definition of consciousness. It's awareness with a choice. So the choices we were making when we didn't have this physical reality full of avatars were like being in a big chat room. The first virtual reality was communication protocols. And that just defined language. That's a rule set define language. Okay, all these individual units of consciousness in the system could all chit-chat with each other because there was a virtual reality that gave it communication protocols. But there wasn't a lot of experience that was really meaningful and challenging. It's just a big chat room with almost no rules. So you could pretty much do anything and that was okay. Not a lot of great consequences for the choices that you made. So the system needed to make a, another virtual reality that was more a tighter rule set. Because the tighter the rule set is, the more consequences you create, right? The more strategies you create. In other words, let me make that a little clearer. If you and I, if I said, okay, Rod, let's play a game. Okay, you go first. You wouldn't know what <laughs> yeah. to do because we don't have any rules. You'd say, I go, what do you mean I go first? There's no rules. Because there's no rules, there's no game. The game is made with rules. Now the rules could be real loose. This is just high card. You pick a card and I'll pick a card and the winner has the high card. That's real simple. Simple rules don't have much strategy. There's not much you can do about that. You're just picking a card. It's just random stuff. But if you have real complex rules, oh, this character can only move sideways for three slots and this one can only move back and forth and this one can do that. And you've got all these rules now you have something that has strategy. You can figure out what to do and what to do next and what's good and what's not good move. And suddenly there's all kinds of complexity involved in the experience of interacting with that rule set. 
So the consciousness said, we need a tighter rule set rather than just communication protocols so that consciousness can experience meaningful uh, consequences. So it can learn and it can grow. How does consciousness learn? It learns how to lower its entropy. That's what it's all about. That's what drives us. That's our mission. That's what we're about, is to lower the entropy of our consciousness. And when we do that, the whole system's entropy is lowered a little bit because we're part of the system. That's our job, is to lower our entropy. That is, grow up. Okay, And that turns out to be lowering entropy is the same as cooperating, caring, interacting with each other positively. And I can make that obvious if you just take two groups of people, almost identical, except this group is, the, I'll call the love group, and this other group's the fear group. And you give each one of them a certain amount of resources and certain space that they can move in and say, all right, you guys go. Okay, you got a fairly tight rule set now, like our Earth. What are they going to do? The one that's the love group, they will cooperate. They'll care about each other. They will build a system with those resources that take care of everybody as best they can because they're in, everybody's interested that everybody else gets their fair share. Mm -hmm. That's just the way they are. Okay, that's the love group. Now you have the fear group. Of course, if you have fear, you don't have trust. If you don't have trust, then it's all about you. You're self-centered. And if it's self-centered, then it's what can I get and how can I keep it? And if everybody is in a what can I get and how can I keep it mode, then pretty soon the big guys beat up the little guys and take their stuff. That's just the way it is. And then the little guys will get together and say, okay, there'll be 10 of us and we'll all work together. Another big guy comes along, we'll knock him and take his stuff. So then the big guys start forming up teams and, and so on. That grows. And what you have is very much like the reality we live in. The fundamental ethic for civilization is the warlord. That's how the strong get at the top, the ones that have power, and those delegate down through lower levels of power until you have all the serfs and the peasants or whatever, people at the bottom who do most all the work. And you end up with 5% of the individuals owning 95% of all the stuff. That's the warlord mentality is how we see the world how a lot of us see the world. And that's just defines a low quality of consciousness. That's a high entropy consciousness, which is a low quality of consciousness. A high quality of consciousness is a low entropy consciousness. So you see, just looking at those two models, which one is the low entropy? In other words, which one is stable? Which one produces more? Which one ends up as being a place you'd like to live as opposed to not? And you'll see that the low entropy, the thing that builds and can build on itself and keep building on itself, you know, get a foundation and build, as opposed to the fear group, which some of the people in their group in the fear can build something up, but there's already somebody who wants to tear that down. Somebody who wants to be the leader, somebody who wants to be up higher on the top and they'll get rid of those people on the top. There's always warring, fighting, struggling, People trying to take each other's stuff and manipulate the peasants. And it's always struggle, which is very high entropy. Everybody getting along and sharing and doing the best they can together, that's very low entropy. There's no conflict there. You don't have that kind of thing. There's not even any rudeness there. It's just, I know, it's hard to imagine, but 
That's the way it works. Yeah. Now, some people will immediately say that, oh, that one is controlled. They have all these rules. And I don't want to, I'll be in that one that's rowdy because that one has more freedom. That's not true. The one that is the low entropy has the fewest rules. It doesn't have to have big hierarchies and all the rules that force control down so that the top can control the middle and the bottom. They don't need all of those rules. They don't have rules. It's not that, hey, you do this and you do that and here are the rules. You're thinking that this collective over here that works nicely together is run by a dictator. It's not. Because all of the experience that we have with collectives is they're collectives of a bunch of people who have a very low quality of consciousness. So you get a bunch of people together for a cooperative collective, and they're all people based on fear. <laughs> what happens? It turns into something ugly. Okay, the people had grand ideas about how it was going to be so wonderful and everybody would love each other, but you got a bunch of high entropy people they're going to turn it into a warlord thing and somebody's going to become the dictator and it all goes to hell in a handbasket because the people don't have enough quality to be caring. It's all about them. They're all self-centered. So the collective has a really bad name because it always fails and turns up in something ugly because the people are not high quality enough to make it work. But where you have a collective of high-quality people, low-entropy people, which is what I said here, then it's not like that. If somebody in the collective says, oh, I'm tired of doing brain surgery, I need to get out and get some fresh air, I need to do something else. And the rest of the collective will try to adjust to make that individual get what they want. It's not like I'm a brain surgeon. That's what I'm trained to do. So whether that's boring or not, that's what I'm going to do for the next 50 years or 30 years. because. That's the track I'm on, and you're stuck in that track. In this other system, you're never stuck in anything. The system that of those people with the high quality of consciousness will adjust itself to accommodate every individual as best it can, as best as possible. So you decide what you want to do is make pretty pictures and write poetry. That has value, and that's valued, so that's fine. And if you want to do that instead of brain surgery, that's okay too. So the system will train enough brain surgeons and train enough whatever so that you can do what you want to do when you want to do it. You got a midlife crisis and suddenly you want to change everything. The rest of the system will support it. That's changes. So you have the maximum amount of freedom in that love group rather than in the fear group. You have the minimum amount of freedom. There's always a lot of rules because the people at the top make rules to make sure they stay on top. And you have all these rules to prevent low quality of consciousness from killing each other. You've got all the criminal law, which is all a bunch of rules. You don't need criminal law in this other place. There are no criminals. You don't have any of that kind of behavior. Nobody wants to take it over. Nobody wants to be the leader. Nobody wants to do that because they're all high quality individuals. So I know it's hard to imagine that's possible, but just think it's theoretically possible. Yes, we could grow up that much. So let's see, where was I? So that's the reason our purpose here on this life is to grow up, become love, make those choices, make it about other rather than about self, get rid of the self-centered, oh, it's all about me and what I want and how can I get it and then how can I keep it and 
who do I have to run over to get it? It's how can I control things? We want to control everything. We want to control our spouse. We want to control our children. We want them to be this way instead of that way. I, when I talk about that warlord mentality, it's not just politics in, a, in nation states. It's about individuals. Individuals see themselves as little warlords of their own little universe that they live in, and they want the kids to grow up and be doctors and lawyers and instead of drug addicts. So they put rules out there, but the rules tend to drive kids to be the drug addicts. So it's a different idea that's hard for people to get their heads around this different idea. So yes, there's lots of other virtual realities out there. Lots of virtual realities. Every reality, that means anywhere that you can have experience. If you can experience in that reality, then it's a virtual reality. Because the only way you can have experience is if there are rules that provide context for the experience. Just like that game I said. If I just say, okay, here's the game. You go first. You can't experience that game. There's no experience because there aren't any rules. It's the rules that create the experience. If any reality you can be in, dreaming, imagining, out-of-bodying, anything that you can be in, there you can experience, that's a virtual reality because rules are required for experience. They, they create the context for the experience. Yes, lots of other realities out there. The larger consciousness system wouldn't put all of its eggs in just one basket. It would have different virtual realities. And maybe the way that they're managed would be different because the system would like to say, what's the most effective and efficient way to run this virtual reality? You know, what can we do to help those consciousnesses that are playing characters in that reality to grow up, to lower their entropy? What could we do to make it a more effective training aid? Because these realities, our physical universe, is an entropy reduction trainer. We're in it being trained to make lower entropy choices because by doing that, we evolve and the system evolves and the system will support us and try to help us as it can because our success is its success. So there's multiple realities around because there's multiple ways to approach that problem. So I'm just hitting the highlights here and there. There's a whole lot of things I'm not talking about because our show isn't that long. We'd have to go for five or six hours to get, a, to get most of it out. But in any case, over to you, Rod. I guess I've stirred up a few questions in all of that. Yeah, that's why I always often have people come back for a, a live stream because of all the other questions. I think what we'll do is in stirring up this, I think people are going to say, be saying, okay, how do I learn more about this? How do I get in touch with these alternative realities that Tom is talking about. So why don't you tell us a bit about, I know you've got your books. Why don't you tell us a bit about what else you've got going on, how people can learn more about what you do and any other programs you might have, Tom? Uh, okay. First, just a little basics. And that is that all of the paranormal things happen in the intuitive channel. Your consciousness basically has two channels in which it processes information. One channel is the intuitive channel. The other channel is the intellectual channel or the logic channel. The intuitive channel does not do logic. It does information without logic. You get things, but it's not logical. You just know. It's the intuitive channel. All things paranormal happen in the intuitive channel. Hmm. Now, we Westerners, and probably most Easterners these days too, the Western cultures run over the whole world, we tend to develop our intellectual side 
a lot because we do do that. We start with preschool and then school and then high school and then college and graduate school. We keep working on it. Even if we don't go to school, we keep learning things, learning new skills, learning new things, understanding things better. All of that is on our intellectual side. Okay. And on the intuitive side, we're not as smart intuitively as we were when we were three years old. When we were three years old, we were more intuitive than we are now. And we've lost even that little bit. So here we are with this big macho muscle and this tiny little infant baby of a development on the intuitive side, almost to the point that scientists will tell you there is no intuition. Intuition doesn't exist. So all of the paranormal things then just can't exist because that's where they are. So if you want to learn that, you have to learn it through your own experience. It's like I said, if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. If you want to understand this larger reality from the inside, then you need to experience these things and convince yourself through your own actions and interactions that this is real. And because I tell people, don't believe anything I say, you need to go experience it yourself. And you can experience everything that I've experienced is open for experience. I'm not particularly special in that only I can experience it. Everybody can experience it. All right. How do you develop your intuitive side to where you can experience it, where you can depend on it? First, I will tell you that once you develop your intuitive side, you will find it's just as correct just as reliable as your intellectual side. Right now, when it's undeveloped, you think it's flaky. It's like your gut hunches, they are wrong as often as they are right. That's because your intuitive side is undeveloped. But once you develop it, actually the truth is, it's more accurate and more dependable, more reliable than the intellectual side. But I generally don't say that because I know that pushes people's credibility buttons. It's actually more reliable. And the reason for that is your intellectual side is always stymied by a lack of information. Logic, deductive logic, requires a lot of information. Okay, what is that I said the earlier important things? Who should I marry? How many children should I have? Okay, now figure that out logically. <laughs> you you can't figure that out logically. There's not enough information. The only way to figure that out logically is if you had a crystal ball, and if this happened to be a, a reality that, what is it called? If you're a materialist, you're also a determinist. If it was a determinist reality where nothing ever changed, nothing evolves, nothing is learned, nothing ever changes, it's determined at the beginning, it's all done. All right, if you were in a determinist reality and had a crystal ball, then you'd know who to marry because you could just look and see how that worked out over the next 50 years. But you don't. One, it's not a determinist reality. There is no done deal on the future. The future happens as we make choices. There's possibilities and there's potentials and there's probabilities. And there's a database that's the probable future database of all those things that are likely to happen or that not likely that could happen. All the possibilities and the probabilities that each might happen. So that database is there. But there is no future. So without a crystal ball, you're Logic isn't worth a damn when it comes to the big questions of who do I marry or how many children are we going to have or what sort of dog am I going to 
by and just anything. Which job should I take? And inside that job, which position should I take? Should I take this or should I wait for something better? There's no logical answers to any of those questions. All the questions you have that are really important to you are all done on the intuitive side. None of them can be solved from the intellectual side. Now, we pretend that we solve them in the intellectual side. We're good at pretending that. We think we're very rational people and we run our life with logic. But that's nonsense because we never have enough information to run our life with logic. We run our life based on guessing, and that guessing is based on our experience. We have experiences and things work out this way, so we guess that they probably previous trends will continue. So we make guesses based on experiences, the way we deal with that lack of information. And when you make guesses based on the past, you're wrong an awful lot because the past doesn't have to repeat itself all the time. If that's your mode of, of getting through life, then you'll be wrong almost as often as you're right because in dealing with people and what people do and why they do it, Past experience just doesn't tell you a whole lot because everybody's different. We aren't machines. If we were all machines, that would work pretty well, but we're not. So we get a lot of it wrong. We don't understand each other. And guess we think everybody's like us and everybody thinks like us and feels like us. And that's a very poor assumption to make. But we treat everybody with the idea that they're just like us, but they aren't. So everybody has this intuitive side and they can develop it. And I have some tools for developing. I have two really major tools for developing your intuitive side, which will open the doors for all the paranormal things. And I suggest that you put some time into it because it's not all that hard. You can be reasonably good at healing other people with your mind very quickly. You can be good at it almost immediately and get reasonably good at it in six months. It doesn't take a lot of time. That's one of the easiest paranormal things to do because there's so much uncertainty in the probabilities with it because biology is so complex. There's lots of uncertainties about what might happen. And it's a very complex machine and you really don't know how that might work out. There are people that have stage four cancer and given two weeks to live and after a week, they don't have any cancer at all and they live another 30 years. That happens. So biology is just has so many possibilities and what we're doing is manipulating the possibilities. With your intent, you can modify those probable future database. You can modify the probabilities in that database. So what is probable to happen, those probabilities will shift. It doesn't mean that you'll get what you want. It just means the probabilities have shifted. So it's a little more likely you get what you want. If what you wanted was a million to one and now it's only a thousand to one, well, you're still not going to get it likely. It's still a thousand to one, but you've really moved the probability a whole lot. So it depends on where the probabilities are, how much you can move them and how adept you are at being able to move them. But that's the way that works. So everybody can learn that sort of thing. Remote viewing, you can be good at it to where most of the time you get a lot of it, but not all of it, but a lot of it, you know, in what, uh, you know, a week or two you know, a month or two, it's just not that hard. So you can do these things, but you have to develop that intuitive side. And the hardest thing that people have, the thing that, that makes it difficult is you've got this big muscle guy on your left brain, and that is your intellect. 
And that intellect always wants to butt in and solve the problem because that's how you deal with life. You lead in life with your intellect. Your intellect looks at things, finds out where the problems are, avoids the problems, yay for my intellect. And that's how you run this life. As soon as you get into the intuitive channel, your intellect wants to also butt in. And, and as soon as it butts in, the intuitive channel's gone. Intuitive channel isn't run by the intellect. It's trashed by the intellect. So the intuitive channel has to tell the intellect, go sit down, I just want to experience something. Leave me alone and don't butt in. And most people have a real hard time getting their intellect to do that because they're so habituated to that intellect running everything. So that is the, that's the big problem. So it's not that we have to learn some clever new way of doing things. We have to unlearn an old way of doing things is what says our intellect's running everything. We have to let that happen. We have to just be open to the information and then get it. Now, if our intellect is guessing what it is, that will ruin it. It won't work. So I have two methods for doing that. And there's really two methods for getting into the intuitive state, developing your intuition. One of them is through the, the standard uh, role of, of meditation that's typical. And what you do there is that you discipline your mind. And most of it is discipline, disciplining your intellect to be quiet. So in meditation, they'll tell you to sit down and have no thoughts. In other words, tell your intellect to be quiet. Yep. And eventually, you will learn to discipline that intellect and be able to turn it off. So the whole, the whole exercise in meditation is just to discipline the intellect to get it to sit down and be quiet. That's the whole point of it, mostly. And a lot of people struggle with that and find it hard to do. Some find it almost impossible to do. And it takes time to do that because you not only need to shut that intellect down for a second or two, but for the next half hour. But you can actually do things on the other side. And not a single question or thought or anything comes through your mind. It's just open. Okay, that's you becoming aware of the intuitive side. And after that, just a little bit of work, you can work on those paranormal things and they'll, they'll be fairly easy. The other two things that get in the way, three things actually, they're all based on one thing and that's fear. It's your fear will get in the way. Now the fear has children. There's two children of fear. One of them is ego and the other one is belief. Fears create a lot of ego and a lot of belief. That ego and that belief will cause you trouble. So getting rid of your fear is really a good thing to do. It'll make your intuitive voyages much easier and much more productive. If you've got fear, then you'll take that fear with you and you'll find all sorts of scary things while you're in your intuitive side. You will intuit a lot of scary junk that's just your own fear coming right out of your ego. So that will get in the way. All right, these two products. One of them is Explore the Larger Conscious System with Thomas Campbell. It's a program. Yep. It's a program that you can take. It spans, I don't know, five days, six days. And it's not all that expensive. Uh, it was what happened was that I gave these this program on real brick and mortar locations. We gave this program 
And because they're brick and mortar locations, you know, there's venues, there's food, there's travel mm. costs. They're pretty expensive. And if you have all the costs figured in, it's two or $3,000 to spend five days learning this stuff. So it's pretty expensive. But I did that maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 times. And friends of mine, Don and Keith Warner, they took all of those 30 or 40 of those times, searched through them and took the best of all of them take a whole thing and created one five-day course and they put it on audio so on soundwise and if you go to their website which is mbtevents.com they will have lots of pointers to that and you can get that now that is the path that generally runs through meditation okay you expected to be able to quiet your mind the other one is tom's park oh, yes tom's park yep. is another way that you can get there and it has nothing to do with meditation. You don't have to be able to meditate at all. The discipline just comes naturally and it uses your imagination. And the imagination is another way to get there. Again, with the imagination, you start, you learn to imagine and then just let the action roll on by itself without you being there. And I've got a thing called Tom's Park that will explain it all to you. And you get into the physical part of the park first to develop your imagination skills. And then you go into the parts of the park that are mainly about the non-physical things that you can deal with in there. So two ways that you can find out for yourself. And I recommend you do find out for yourself. I wish I'd had three hours to talk to you, Tom, but it's been great. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And perhaps we'll have you back again for a, a live stream. And I really appreciate your time today. Okay. Well, you're welcome. 